a great series we kicked off last week. Um, been getting a lot of great feedback on it. What we tried to do with this series was take a couple of things. It's a short series. I want to take a couple of things, um, topics that tend to, uh, things that entangle us, things that get us stuck for years, uh, things that truly haunt us, as the title of the series mentions. And what we want to do is turn those hauntings into hope. That's our prayer with this series. Last week, Donnie was here, lead pastor, kicked it off, and he dealt with haunted by evil. And if you missed it, you can go out on the website, uh, lifepointchurch.com slash listen, and by Tuesday or Wednesday, that message will be out there. But just a couple things from that message. What, what did, if you weren't here, what did we learn? We learned to believe in Satan. And you're like, yeah, really? But the numbers he gave, it was like high 40% of evangelical pastors did not believe that Satan was real, that Satan was a concept, not a real spiritual being. You see, and that's exactly what Satan would like to have done, is to deceive you, to keep you from the truth of knowing that Jesus Christ truly is the solution to those things that haunt you, and he will do anything he can to keep your eyes off of Christ. I love one of the things Donnie said. I like lots of things, but one of the sentences really... Uh, summed it up. It was a real hopeful thing for me because he said, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, we don't fight for victory. We fight from a position of already being victorious. And there's a big difference in that when you're fighting for versus when you stand in being victorious already. Today, we're going to continue in the series. We're going to look at haunted by insecurity. There's so many different things, and we'll touch on some of them today. Um, But in the end, those insecurities, those things that we're not confident about, they end up affecting our assurance, our confidence, and our view of ourselves. And the problem with that is, is when when we have an unhealthy view of ourselves, when the lens that we have, when we look at ourselves is not right, then we end up getting in relationships, we end up getting in situations that just keep the, you know, the unhealthiness going. And so God has a lot to say about this on how to view mankind. We're going to look at some of the passages today. So I'm going to ask that the ushers come down with Bibles. If you don't have one, just kind of signal to them. They will give you one this morning. We're going to be looking into God's word at some truths. All of it's true, but I want to look at truths that apply for today. We'll look at somebody who you probably already know. If you've been in church for a while, you've probably studied this person in Sunday school or perhaps in a small group. Um, person's Moses. Story begins in Exodus chapter 2. It's probably around page 40 of the Bibles that you just got. But Moses was God's chosen leader to lead God's chosen people. And Moses didn't understand how prepared he was for that mission. He had an amazing childhood. Think about it. He was born in secret to a Jewish couple. Within three months, he was lovingly abandoned because of what was going on in the leadership in Egypt. And then he's miraculously rescued by an Egyptian princess. And then he finds himself spending the first 40 years of his life learning Egyptian education, learning to be a leader Egyptian style. And then the second 40 years of his life, he fled because of something that he'd done. But he's sitting there 
wandering around the desert, leading sheep around the terrain. He thinks he's just leading sheep, but little did he know it was preparing him to lead the Israelite nation, God's chosen people, through the same territory. And then there's that scene where we all know, the burning bush, right? Exodus chapter 3. And God says, I have seen the misery of my people. I've heard their cry. I've come. And he says, I'm sending you. So God's saying, Moses, I have a job for you. And Moses is like, oh, you got the wrong person. Absolute wrong person. And he tried as hard as he could to convince God that he had the wrong person. Starts off in um, verse 11. Moses says, who am I that I should go? All of a sudden, he has an identity crisis. Who am I that I should go? And God says, he doesn't answer him directly. He says, I will go with you. But that, you know, having, the, having God go with him is not enough for Moses. He then goes on in verse 13, says, suppose that they say, what is it? Who is his name that sends me? So now he's doubting the authority. He's questioning authority. And God says, well, tell them I am who I am sent sent you. Now, he could have used the short form of that word, tell him I am sent you. But the word I am who I am in the original language, there is no way. The Israelites were big on names. Names represented something. It was like a, a word picture. Well, there is no set of words, no set of images. When you say I am who I am, you cannot even put in words to capture the magnitude of God wasn't good enough for Moses. Then he says, well, they won't believe me when I tell them this. So now crisis of faith and trust. So God says, well, here's, here's some signs. Shows him some signs that he's going to do. Not enough. Then he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 10, I'm not eloquent. He's starting to doubt his ability. He knows that the advisors of Pharaoh, they're known for their speech and their leadership. And how they communicate. And he's saying, oh, I don't have that. And God says, I created your mouth. I'll help you speak. Not enough. He finally says, please send somebody else. You know, he's just, he's struggling with his obedience there. But Moses, lack of assurance, lack of confidence in himself, led him to say, who am I? Have you ever asked yourself that question, who am I? That's a big question. And the answer to that, how you answer that, is so important. And so today, at the top of your notes, just who am I? Question mark. You know, now some of you may be here and you're like, great, I came last week and they tell me to believe in Satan. I already do. I understand he's real. Today you're coming and saying, uh, look at yourself, figure out if you're confident in who you are. And I am. Uh, And Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, if you think you're standing firm, be careful. When I was young, my grandfather gave me a raccoon's tail. And he said, son, if you, well, he's from up north, so he didn't say son. Um, He said, son, if you carry this raccoon's tail, you're going to feel safe, secure all the time. But carry this raccoon's tail. So I went everywhere with this raccoon's tail. I could not be without this raccoon's tail. Always slept with the raccoon's tail. Went out in public with the raccoon's tail. Seemed to work. And I forgot the incident, but all of a sudden, I remember holding the raccoon's tail, and I was scared out of my skull, and I wasn't safe, and I wasn't protected. And I realized the thing that I was holding had nothing to do 
with my assurance, my confidence and protection myself. Why do I say that? Don't dismiss today's question. I would rather you sit here and ask yourself, what are you holding on to as the answer to your question of who am I? Do it starting now and walk from here resolving that question than waiting to get in a crisis and having to answer that question. I've been on the other side where I had to answer that question under pressure. And it's not fun. That who am I is just a few words, right, in a question. But the, but the implications of that question are huge. I like the smaller questions. Where's the remote? Where are we going on vacation? What's for dinner? You know, but who am I? That's big. And knowing the answer and living out that answer, that's two different things. They're the same thing, but it's very hard to live, make those two work in harmony together. So I would challenge you today, don't dismiss that question. And when I went through this season, we all go through seasons, right? Some of them are high. Some of them are great times. There are other times when it, it's a challenging time. And this, when I got this question, and I didn't think this was the question that I was dealing with, but when I was in this season, um, I do a, a lot what I've, you know, I believe what the Bible says, and it is that as iron sharpens iron, one man sharpens another, that two are better than one. And so I went and found a, a Christ follower and sat down and talked to them about what was going on, shared my story. And in the midst, of, you know, he asked some questions. He threw back some of God's word. He challenged me. And so I thought we were done, and I knew some next steps to take in this season of my life. And as I was leaving, he said, um, one last thing. When you're all done with that, and don't do it prior to that, I want you to revisit something else. I said, oh, what? He said, I want you to go back and remember who you are. I was like, oh, there's that question again. Who am I? And immediately in my mind, I said, I'm a Christ follower. But this man was way too wise. He saw that what my heart was believing was not matching perhaps what my head had accepted. And so he challenged me there and said, go look at that. You see, we all have an answer to that question, who am I? Whether it's good or bad, we have an answer to it. And we have a way of looking at our worth. Why is Rob important? Why are you important? You have a way to measure that. Again, good or bad, we all have an answer to that. So I ask you today, how are you feeling about yourself? I know a lot of you are struggling. I've talked with you in my office and Take, for instance, the, the economy. You're without a job. And so I hear very often, I don't feel like I have purpose. I've lost my significance. I don't know what to do. I mean, it feels like I'm empty. Some people with physical disabilities, or as you grow older and you realize you can't do things that the younger generation can do, and you don't feel confident, you don't feel like you can perform like you used to. You see, with that way of viewing yourself, you're measuring yourself by your performance. That will never last. There are other ways. Let me stay on this one first before I go off. There are some of you that would never say this. You would, you would never say, I'm really good. Okay, you wouldn't say that. But what you end up doing is you find out the deficiencies in everybody else. They don't do it as good as I do. I've been doing this for years. You know, 
And what I want to suggest is you are measuring yourself the same way the others are, and that is you are rooting your worth in your performance, and when somebody threatens that, watch out, because then that's when the pride, the criticism, the judgment comes out. Judging yourself, your worth, by your performance, you'll never measure up. Some of you don't feel accepted. You try as much as you can to make everybody happy so that everybody is your friend. You realize that is an impossible task, but yet you keep doing it. You're judging your worth on relationships with others. Now, you may say, don't you tell us from the stage over and over again that relationships are important? Yes, but we say vertical relationship with God is important, and out of that, do you go and establish relationships. But when you make this your primary um, measure for who you are, it won't hold up. It's backwards. Primary, secondary. Not even secondary, but otherwise you're putting it up for a public opinion poll. Hey, what do you think I am? Well, you might like me and you might not. So some of you don't feel accepted. There are others that don't feel good about themselves. They feel ugly. They don't like their weight. They don't like, you know, clothes, decision on clothes, the way hair looks, which I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Um, now, don't get me wrong. You're like, shouldn't we, shouldn't we care about what we look like and take care of Yes. I'm talking about something totally different, that every decision is not an easy one. For some it is, but for others, appearance is the way you judge your worth, and it becomes very important to you. There are other ways that we measure. We measure by our intellect, our possessions, our kids. The problem with every one of those things is it is the world's measure of worth. What you know and what you do determines your worth. And when you set your eyes on other people and you start to measure the difference between you and somebody else, the somebody else will always, always win. There will always be somebody who is further in their career, is better looking than you, has more things than you. It's a moving target. So how we answer this question, who we are, is so important. But we're drawn to these other measures of worth. In Barna, in a research, there was a section of it that had to do with our identity. And he said this, he concluded with this. Although more than four out of five adults say they are Christian, they do not consider their faith to be their primary defining attribute. They are more likely to see themselves as Americans, as consumers, as a spouse, as a parent, and even employee than to describe themselves primarily in the terms of their faith. It's no wonder we feel insecure when we are setting or measuring by secondary parameters. And just like with a physical illness, when you have a fever, it kind of points to something that's going on physically. With insecurities, it points to something that's an ailment spiritually. There is something that needs to be addressed because how you feel about yourself or how you answer this, who am I? It affects how you feel about yourself, and it also affects what you can become. That answer is so important. And so how we're to view ourselves, right? You're like, I get it. Give me an answer. Well, the world will say, well, your self-image, your self-esteem is something that's kind of like a tire tube. You can increase it a little bit, but just inflate it, and sometimes it needs a little deflating. But how many of you, if you wear contacts or 
you know, glasses. How many of you would walk in to an eye doctor and you're seeing this way, okay? Now, trust me, on the next slide, there is a difference between this slide and next slide. How many of you, after a couple adjustments, you know, one or two, A or B, and you can never tell, how many of you, on the, if it landed on this one, and there is a difference, would go, oh, thanks, doc, that looks good, and you'd go from there? No. You would want to see this way. I want you to be able to view yourself through God's perfect eyes. And as one of your pastors, I'm here to tell you it's not about a good or a bad self-image. It is about an accurate self-image. That's what we've got to do. And that's what I'm going to try to help us do this morning. So what does the Bible say? How are we to view ourselves? I want to start in Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Paul says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. When you talk to Christians, you'll find a wide range of how you're supposed to view mankind. There will be some that say, man is nothing. And there will be others who say, man is everything. And then you'll find some differences, uh, you know, wide range. There are truths. They'll all use scriptures to back up their point. And the scriptures are true. But I will say they are unbalanced Because over here, man is nothing. It is very true that without God, we are nothing. But how about the fact that we were created? We didn't just happen. We were created. There was intention. There was purpose. Furthermore, we were created what? In God's image. So every human has intrinsic worth. So there is, you know, man is nothing, yes, but also man is very important. There was an intention when God created man. Now, what can happen, though, is on this side, you swing all the way to the other side, and all of a sudden, the creation becomes the thing that's worshipped, not the creator. So this passage says, we are to look at ourselves with sober judgment, with realistic appraisal. And I think Jesus did a good job of giving us a lens of how to look at ourselves. When he was talking to the disciples, In Luke 9, verse 23, let's read it, because this is where he says, I want to give you a clue into finding yourself. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has like three steps. In this verse, he's got three steps to finding yourself. And I hate to put put it in a formula, make it sound easy, but Right here in this verse, three steps to finding yourself. First one, he says, is deny yourself. And when you look at that word, deny, in the original language, it is a strong word. It means a radical repudiation. It means a radical disowning of yourself. And notice that he, in, in this sentence, he uses an association with the cross. And And a lot of times the disciples, look at the gospel, sometimes they'll pull Jesus aside and they'll go, hey, you said this, what do you mean about that? Why did you say that? Notice in this account, they never pull him aside. They never say, what do you mean by deny? What do you mean in association with the cross? Because they knew exactly what it meant. They knew that on a cross, something died. So they knew that it wasn't, denying wasn't about inflicting pain on yourself or forever not, you know, 
withholding pleasure. They, they knew it was something different. And Jesus has this way about answering the question in that moment, but also cutting across time with his answer to like this whole theological principle. And here he's saying to them, he's answering them because they think a king is coming, he's going to have a military with him, and they're going to defeat Rome. But Jesus is saying, yes, Rome will be defeated, but it's going to come through the cross. So he's saying, deny your way and follow God's way. And he's saying, you want to find yourself Stop doing it your way and start to pay attention to God's way and in the process, you'll find yourself. You see, God's way, go, back to the old, uh, go all the way back to Genesis. You do not see Adam walking around the garden going, man, who am I? I just don't feel competent. I don't feel like I belong. No, his identity is sure and certain and it is totally wrapped up in his relationship with God period. But all you have to do is flip over a couple chapters and all of a sudden you see Adam start to turn from God and say, you know what? I got a little bit different plan and I'm going to do it my way. And I wish I had more time to talk here today, but what happened there, it wasn't a physical death, but it was a spiritual death. You see, without God, we are spiritually dead. And Jesus is saying, well, for Adam, he's denying who he is. He's denying God, but he's really denying who he really is. He's trying to be something that he's not. He's trying to be independent. You and I weren't meant to be independent. You're like, wait a minute. I was taught that it's healthy to be independent. Yes, but when it's at the expense of God, you are meant to be dependent on God. But when we start to deny that, we deny who we really are. When we deny God, we deny who we really are. And Jesus is saying, you want to find yourself? You want to find out who you really are? Then deny yourself. Because your identity is meant to be in me. Your life is a hidden one, and it is to be in me. So some of you say, yeah, I get the whole denying thing. I know how to deny the part of self that is in opposition to God. And I am a Christ follower, so I know I'm spiritually alive and I'm not uh, spiritually dead. I understand that difference. And you say, I've denied, I've denied, I've denied, and I'm still the same. Why don't I see change? Well, you see, denying is not just about doing nothing. It's not just sitting there and meditating and meditating on God's word. It's the second principle that God, Jesus says. He says, deny yourself and follow me. So if you've been denying, denying, denying and see no change, I say start following Christ. He will have you on the move. He'll have you on the move toward God in faith and he will have you on the move toward others in love. That's just the way he works. How many of you, if you had a car and the engine blew and you took it into a shop and they put a new engine in there, when you got the call to go pick it up, how many of you would just walk around the car Oh, man, it looks great. Open up the door, sit in it. I love a new engine. You would stick the key in there and take it for a drive. And I want to tell you, start following, start living. Jesus says, that's part of it. But that's a scary thing for some folks. Wait a minute. If I start moving, what if? You start doing the Moses. What, what, what if? I won't. I didn't. 
he says the same thing to you as he did to Moses. I will be with you. If you are a Christ follower, you have the spirit of God dwelling within you. I am with you. And when he calls you to task, he will equip you to do what he's calling you to do. But then you'd say, yeah, okay. You start taking steps and you think that you're supposed to be perfect in denying. So as soon as you get a hiccup on denying yourself and you're like, oh, I failed. You you confuse denying with like a one-time experience and you're supposed to be perfect. That's not the case. It's the third point that Jesus says. He says, take up your cross, what? Daily. You are to do this daily. Think about it. Jesus prepared 30 years. Sinless Jesus prepared 30 years for a three-year ministry. Why are you thinking that God wants to be in that much more of a rush with you? Holiness doesn't happen overnight. It will be perfected when you're in heaven with Christ. But until then, it doesn't happen instantly. It is a process. So start living. But another thing, as we start to fail like that, you think, I'm nothing new. Same old me, same person. See, I want to read for you some words in Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice some things in that passage. As a Christ follower, you died with Christ. You are dead to sin. Dead things don't have life anymore. You're, you, so you think the old person has revived itself. No, it doesn't have a life. It doesn't, you're not a slave to that anymore. You are alive in Christ. And now you're called to step out, follow, and live that new life. And it will take denying self daily. I want to close with a, a story about a VW Beetle. And you may be like, man, what are all these automotive stories? Um, I, uh, my dad, I love him to death. Um, he, he could only fix things with duct tape. So there's nothing in a car you can fix with duct tape. So I have another family member who has a lift, and he's been teaching me a lot of automotive things. So that's why you get the automotive illustrations, and perhaps I'll change hobbies here in a bit. But there was this VW Beetle, 1967 VW Beetle, that lived in a land where cars were much more than transmission fluid, than steel, than their tires. And of all the cars in this land, this Beetle was the ugliest. It was rusted. The tires were bald. And if you looked all around, it was the most homely of all the cars. And he felt that way too. I'm a homely beetle. I'll be nothing. I'm a nothing. And he tried everything, everything that he could do to change that. High octane gas, new air filters, custom mufflers, uh, paint job, you name it. But every time he came to that same point, of realizing I'm the same homely VW bug. One day he's driving down the road, and what he saw in the other lane nearly made him cross the yellow line. And what he saw on the other side was a Rolls Royce. And he's like, if I could be that Rolls Royce, 
I'd be happy. But then he had to scheme. He had to think, how am I going to make that happen? Then he realized, I got enough money. And he went, and he went to the dealership, the Rolls-Royce dealership, pulled up and went in there, and the transformation began. They started cutting out the emblem on the front where the VW thing was, and they replaced it. And they started reshaping the body. And when it was all done, he drove out, and he's like, for sure, this, is gonna, this was so worth it. But no sooner did he get driving up did he realize, deep down, he was still him. And when he realized this, his battery started to run low. And he was headed for the junkyard, the scrapyard. He pulled up at a light, and this little Studebaker comes and stops at the light and says, Hey, VW, Bug, what's going on? And the Beatles looked at him, and there was something that didn't relate because this, this Studebaker looked happy. But yet he wasn't stylish. He wasn't shiny. It made the bug look great, but it didn't compute. So he, the Beatles said to the Studebaker, you look like you figured out the secret to transportation. You know where you're going and where you're headed. And the Studebaker said, I do. And my mechanic gave me my purpose. So he took down the address and he headed to the mechanic. And when he pulled up, the mechanic said, I've been expecting you. And the Beatles said, Uh, The Studebaker gave me your address. Yes, I know. And then he proceeded to say, "Can can, can you help me? I have tried everything and nothing has worked. Can you help me? And the mechanic says, you bet I can. And there was something inside of the beetle that just started welling up. He started feeling something he'd never felt before. But then he had to ask that question. Well, how much is it gonna cost? And he said, everything. Beetle put his head down dejected because he, he lost everything trying to f- change things. But then the mechanic said, but the price has been paid. He said, but there's one thing. I need you to sign over your title and your registration. He says, do you want to own me? And in his mind, he's like, that's worse than being like totaled. But then he looked around. And he looked at all the cars in that lot. And it reminded him of that Studebaker who was dressed up and he knew where he was going. And in that moment, he surrendered himself to the care of the mechanic and he gave over his title and his registration. And that happened. He did his work. He restored him to his original condition, but he felt better than he did when he rolled off of that assembly line. And he asked the mechanic, why? Why is that? Because I'm still the 1967 only Beetle. And the mechanic said, but yes, now you are my 1967 homely Beetle. I pray this morning, it's our prayer as a pastoral staff, that if you walked in defining yourself by some other way, who am I? It is our passion, our desire that you answer that. I am yours, Lord.